0: Hello and welcome to the Recovering God podcast. This is a platform for women and men to explore issues that affect the faith lives of Christian women. We hope you find this episode interesting. Well Grace, here we are again. Mm. In the middle of Storm Brendan. Let's hope this recording's not like a storm. <laughs> it's a great name for a storm. Yeah, it is. It's and a... I have a cold as well. So. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you sound really sexy, don't you? Oh,
1: thanks for saying. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Helen Painter. Tell us about Helen Painter. She's director for the Centre for the Study of Bible and Violence at Bristol Baptist College. Uh, she's just overall a very lovely person, and she was great to interview, the brilliant thing about this interview was that it's the first one that we've really gone into detail on the Bible mm-hmm. and a particular text, which has been really nice. And we're hoping to do more of that, aren't we? Yeah, we are, yeah. That be that's that's kind of our aim, really.
0: Well, in the midst of other things, but that's it'd be good to get really get grappling with the the Bible like we do in this this episode. It's great.
1: I should apologise for the sound quality. There's a, a bit of a sort of background. Hum, um, which kind of gets better as the interview goes on, but um, we've tried to do our best to remove it and and can't quite get rid of it completely, so I do apologise for that. Hopefully it won't be too distracting for people. And the other thing to say about this interview is, yet again, Alison, we've got one that talks about violence against women. Oh!
0: (laughs) Oh, and this one was recorded before the last one came (laughs) out, and yet again, how
1: funny that, that it's a a theme that comes up again. Mm. Oh we'll dear. have to uh, we'll have to go for something lighter next time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good idea. All right, that's fine then. <laughs> okay, well, let's hear it, shall we? Yeah. Helen, welcome to the Recovering God podcast.
2: Thank you. Lovely to be with
1: you. I wondered whether you could tell me a bit about your faith so far. Uh, What was your relationship to faith growing up and maybe what's your affiliation now, if you have any at all? Mm. Uh, Well,
2: I grew up in a Christian family. Um, I remember um, when I was a teenager wishing I had some dramatic conversion story like the ones I read um, in christian paperbacks um and regretting that i didn't have one but uh, now of course i'm very grateful that i didn't have any such dramatic moment um <laughs> I, I was taught to pray from the age of well you know from from, from my mother's knee um and uh, I remember very clearly encounters with god in my in my small uh, my young childhood i guess god really got hold of me uh, my teens you know you got to kind of Make the faith your own, haven't you as, you? as you grow up, so um, oh, I've had ups and downs since then, but um, and times when I've been further from God and, and times when when it's been easier to follow Him, but um, yeah, that's that's kind of a very short, potted version of of my faith so far. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, I trained as a doctor uh, first when I left uh, school and worked as a doctor for oh, I don't know, 16 years or something. But um, just about 11 years ago, I was called um, out of medicine to um, Baptist ministry. And so I went to Bristol Baptist College and I trained there for Baptist ministry. And um, so, I'm a, so I'm an affiliated um, Baptist uh, minister um, working still in a church as well as my theological teaching.
1: So when you're um, preaching and in, in your personal life and when you're writing, what, what do you call God? What is your image of God?
2: That's a big question, isn't it? Well, I, I use the male pronoun, um, yep. um, which I, I guess many of your uh, interviewees may not do, but I, I do. Um, I call him father. Um, I had a good father, so I don't find that problematic. I'm aware, of course, that not everybody has had a good father and I'm quite careful. when I use that language, um, leading services and so on, that I try and make it clear that I'm speaking about God as a, as a good father. And, that you know, the unhelpful images that sometimes people have. Um, you know, shouldn't be mapped on to God. I'm interested in how people describe their relationship with God. And a lot of people I know maybe would say that he was their rock or he was, you know, the anchor or the the refuge. And he's certainly been all of those things to me. Um, But if I had to choose one, I think I would say he's my captain. He leads me into these crazy places that I choose (laughs) to go but of course never takes me somewhere he hasn't been himself and doesn't and never leaves me to go there on his own yeah it's a wonderful exhilarating thing um being a disciple I think
1: would you call yourself a Christian feminist
2: oh I do know this has been an ongoing conversation with a friend of mine so I've always said I'm not a feminist Mm -hmm. um and I'm not quite sure why I say that maybe because I uh, there are a lot of things I feel strongly about um, poverty and justice issues and and all sorts of things like that and I've never experienced much in the way of um, sexual discrimination or harassment mm-hmm. I think probably all women have experienced a bit but I, I think I've, I've got off fairly lightly and so I guess it wasn't an issue that pressed itself hard on me mm-hmm. but as I've been thinking more and more about, well, about justice issues in the world and about how the Bible is sometimes used for violent purposes. May God forgive us. I've been coming up against more and more um, gender-based violence. Yeah, all sorts of, yeah, well, you know this sort of stuff and, and your listeners know this sort of stuff, I think. So I suppose it's gradually dawning on me that I probably am a bit of a feminist. But <laughs> um it's not a label that I, I that somehow sits easily with me and I'm not entirely sure why that is I suppose there's um within academic feminist biblical scholars there's a, a quite a wide range um, and many um, academic feminist biblical scholars take a much more skeptical view to scripture than I am um, comfortable taking
1: but I have a question about living in the intersection between Christianity and feminism do you feel like you ever do if you're it sounds like you're just beginning to contemplate whether you might be feminist
2: (laughs) i think i am i think i live in that intersection quite a lot actually i think with with the work i've been doing lately so the last two books that i've written have been very much in the areas of um, gender-based violence and that has brought me right to this intersection really so i think i feel i'm not just an academic Um, i'm not just a christian academic i'm a minister and there's a responsibility that I feel because of that position, that means I I try and tread carefully when there are when I'm living in intersections. I try and uh, be careful what I say. Yeah, so it's it's an interesting place. It's a very exciting place. It's a very fruitful place. Uh, it has been for me for the last year or so, but it's quite a challenging place to live. I, I suppose i continually come back to to the words of the apostle paul really who who says knowledge puffs up but love builds up and if i'm what i'm doing isn't building up then i need to keep my mouth shut um and i want and of course i don't succeed but i want everything i do to be helpful to people who are followers of jesus or seeking to be followers of jesus um, i don't ever want to do or say things that make it harder for people to follow So yes, it's 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 an interesting intersection. I I enjoy it, but it is it is a constant challenge to me.
1: Let's move on then to talk about uh, your academic life. Mm. (laughs) You are have I got the title right here? You're director of the Centre for the Study of Bible and Violence. That's right
2: at Bristol Baptist College. Yes.
1: What does that involve?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Just explain. Um, So the centre has been going um, just over a year and I'm the, I guess I'm the founding director, I'm the one who kind of came up with it and have have driven it forward really. Mm -hmm. We're working in two areas and we're doing, we've got two target audiences as it were. So the two areas are interpretation of biblical violence. I'm very aware that there are many problems, many questions that the Bible raises that we just don't have good answers for yet um, and that some of those questions present pressing pastoral problems for people in the church. People lose their faith because they read stories of biblical violence. And then in the other area is to do with the way that the Bible is appropriated by people who um, want to endorse violence. So I've been working, I've looked at um, structural violence around immigration um, and, and how we treat Um, asylum seekers and so on. I've done work on um, domestic abuse and how the Bible is used um, in situations of domestic abuse. I've started doing a bit of work on um, how the Bible is used by um, the radical right in Europe and to some extent in this country. Um, And there's loads of other areas as well. So, yeah, appropriation of the Bible um, to, quote, endorse, unquote, violence. And then within those two areas, um we, we've got kind of two lines of attack really so one is that we're trying to do um really um, cutting-edge scholarly work in those areas so good, good quali- aiming to do good quality academic work there very much want this to be something that is of use to the church so looking to um podcasts videos i, I speak quite a bit at, uh, at at you know um events writing books producing study resources and so on because i because i want to, i want what we do to be yeah, to be of use. So that's the d- double line of attack.
1: And, so, and I first heard you on another podcast by the Bible Society um, called She Too, where you were talking about one of the so-called texts of terror. And you have a new book coming out um, very soon. In fact, when this podcast episode comes out called Telling Terror, which focuses on a particularly violent story in Judges chapter 19. I wonder whether you could please uh, just explain the story to our listeners for anyone who's unfamiliar. Would that be OK? Yes,
2: yes of Thank course, you. I should say that this is a really uh, gruesome story and a really difficult mm. story to listen to. Um, so if people aren't familiar with it, then just brace yourself, really. Mm. Um, so the story is about a a woman who has no name in the text. Um, she's married to a Levite. And she has, for some reason, um, left him. And the text is ambiguous about why she has left him. Um, There's a number of different possibilities, but nobody really quite knows for sure. And she runs back to her father, um, who lives in Bethlehem. And after some time, after a number of months, her husband decides to go and fetch her and bring her back home. So he goes to her father's house. And then we get a a bizarre little sort of series of instances where the father lavishes hospitality upon his son-in-law and really tries to delay their departure and anyway eventually some days later the man finally puts his foot down and says no we really have to be on our way but it's late in the day um, when they finally set out so they they set out so it's this man his wife and i will just interrupt myself actually and say that um, she's often described as his concubine But the Hebrew word doesn't necessarily mean concubine. It's often used for a second wife. And describing her as concubine can be quite unhelpful. Um, So I prefer to refer to her as his wife. So the party consists of this man, the Levite, his wife, um, and their their, their servant and their donkeys. So they're traveling, and it's starting to get towards evening. And the servant says to um, the man, uh, we need to take shelter. We're not going to get home tonight. Um, shall we turn to this city and uh, and spend the night in it? And the man says, no. Now, we need to understand that in those days, some of the cities belonged to the nation of Israel and some of them belonged to the other tribes. The city that the servant was indicating belonged to uh, one of the other um, sort of nations around. Um, and uh, the man says, no, we won't go there because I'm not sure we can be sure of a welcome. We'll press on to the next Israelite city and this deeply harmonical because of what's going to happen there. So they arrive at this city, a um, city called Gibeah. They sit in the village square, which seems to be, have been the um, standard way of saying, I need lodging for the night. Mm-hmm. And nobody takes them into their home. And uh, they sit there for quite a long time. And eventually this, this old man um, comes um, comes to the village square. He's on his way home. He's been working outside the city in the field. And he himself is not a a, 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 sort of na- a natural, that's all I'm looking for, He's not a native of the town. Anyway, he takes the the family into his house for the night and they lock the door and all should be well. Only all isn't well, uh, because what we get then is this uh, dreadful moment. And uh, what happens is the men of the city um, surround the house and start pounding on the door. And they say to the host, um, bring out the man who came into your house because we want to quote No, unquote, him. And um, many readers of the Bible will understand that that effectively means they want to have sex with him. And in fact, many of the translations just cut out the the ambiguity and and make that clear. So the host goes out to them and says, um, No, no, he kind of remonstrates with them and, and says, No, don't do anything so wicked. And then he says, You can have my virgin daughter and his wife if you like. But the men won't listen. And so The man, the the Levite, seizes his wife and thrusts her out the door and shuts the door on her and just just throws her out to the mob. And then they they torture her and rape her all night. Then as dawn breaks, she makes her way, and, and I think we imagine her crawling, really. She makes her way back to the door where she had been come out of, and she falls down at the door with her hands on the threshold. Now, we don't know. We are not told if she, at that point, dies or not. And one of the things that we need to um, learn as we read Hebrew narrative um, is that there are gaps sometimes that the author leaves for us to contemplate. And I think this is one of those gaps that we are not told whether she is alive or dead. So the morning dawns, the man He's going to go on his journey, go on his way. And he opens the door and he sees his wife lying there with her hands on the threshold. It's the most desperately sad scene. And he says to her, it's just two words in Hebrew. Get up. Let's go. She's done her nighttime service for him. And now it's time for her to do her daytime service. and and, And there's no answer. And we still don't know if she's alive or dead. And so he picks her up, and he throws her over his donkey, and he takes her home. And then he gets a cleaving knife. It's a butcher's knife that he gets. And he cuts her into 12 pieces. And he sends those 12 pieces around the around the nation as a military muster um, to say, we must take revenge on the men who did this. And the, the military muster works, and then there's civil war, and, uh, and the, the country degenerates into the most dreadful chaos, which actually results in the abduction and rape of many, many more women. But she was the first and perhaps the most badly abused.
1: I suppose the question that comes up for me first is, why is it there? What have people said in the past about what it means or what we should take from it?
2: Oh, I mean, what people have said in the past uh, is quite varied and sometimes really quite horrific. So some of the older writers, um, medieval writers, for example, um, they used her as a morality tale, as a cautionary tale to their daughters, that their daughters shouldn't run away from their husbands or shouldn't put themselves sort of outside the the home, you know, should, should stay at home. And the implication being, and sometimes more than the implication, the stated conclusion being that she deserved what was coming to her. I've read that in two modern commentaries as well. One was written in the, oh, off the top of my head, about the 80s, and the other one was written just a few years ago. So they draw the conclusion that she was sexually Im- Im- unfaithful to her husband. And that was her running away to her father was, um, was was a consequence of that. And this is God's judgment upon her. I can't begin to tell you how disturbing I find that and yes. how unfaithful that is, actually, to, to what the text is is about. I'll tell you why I think it's there. We have um, a theme phrase that um, crops up a number of times in the book of judges the book of judges as as i'm guessing listeners will probably know um it's set before the kings of israel but we get this theme word that comes up in judges and it's i'm going to tra- i'm going to translate it very very literally and it says this in those days there was no king in israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes so there's no leader there's a power vacuum Um, and as we know from modern experience when there is a power vacuum um, things degenerate into chaos and the powerful very often abuse the weak the reason i made the point that i was leaving that very literally translated is because many translations will make that kind of a gender neutral thing because they want to make a lot of the language and Bible gender neutral and they say everybody did what they saw fit Mm. i actually think it's quite helpful to leave that very gender specific um, because when there's a power vacuum when the the powerful oppress the weak that powerful weak divide very often falls on gender lines and of course this is what we're seeing here so that's our our theme phrase in the book of judges and it comes up a number of times and i think that many if not most of the stories that the book of judges tells and um listeners may well um be able to think of some of the ones and um, stories of samson the story of jephthah and his daughter um, stories of Gideon um, and, and lots of others as well. Um, these stories, I think, are they're the charge sheet. Sometimes people think that the narrator is endorsing what is happening. And forgive me, but I just I just think that we we, we don't think that way about modern writing. We we don't assume that a police officer who writes a charge sheet for someone they've arrested is endorsing their actions. We we take it as a charge sheet, as a a, a list of accusations. And I think the Book of Judges is a charge sheet against Israel before the monarchy. So I think this story, and it comes very close to the end of the Book of Judges, so it's this story and the events that directly uh, follow on from it. This is the climax, if you like, if you have a a downward climax, what's the bottom? A nadir. This is the the worst. This is the lowest that Israel um, can get. And I'm very struck by the fact that If I were the narrator writing back in the day, I would have been a man. I would have been um, a literate man, clearly. And I'm living in a patriarchal society. If I wanted to describe the most dreadful crime that Israel could possibly commit, I'd probably describe a crime against a man, probably a high ranking man, you know, maybe a priest. And yet we actually get this story, which is about a woman and not just any old woman not just a powerful woman you know relatively powerful woman or a powerful man's wife or something she's a the second wife or concubine or whatever she is she's low status and she's and she's female and yet it is this appalling crime against her which the narrator has chosen to put if you like the final nail in the coffin of of this indictment against israel her story is the story that condemns Israel, that demonstrates how utterly it's fallen from um, how it should be, then she, I argue that she functions almost like, I argue that she's a female judge, really, that we've got all these male judges. Uh, we've got Deborah, who's a female judge, but she's, she's the only official female judge in the book. We've got all these male judges who, who many of whom do dreadful, dreadful things. And then we've got Jephthah's daughter, who gets killed by her father and then we get this nameless woman who somehow somehow speaks that word of criticism that word of judgment against the nation so i think she functions much more powerfully than we sometimes think and i also think that she speaks very powerfully today just by the fact the way that we respond to that story her her pain her her suffering somehow gives voice to who she was and what she experienced and evokes evokes a a really visceral reaction in the reader so i think she yeah so i think she's actually has a lot more agency than perhaps we then then she does within the story itself
1: i wonder how those of us without a degree in theology those of us (laughs) without much training in this area how can we look at texts like this that seem so difficult and so hard to get past or find meaning in. Do you have any advice for sort of lay women, laymen to to look at texts like this, questions they can be asking themselves to help bring out some of these um, more positive, more constructive elements of the text? I think one of the things that I, as I talk about it, I discover that
2: people are surprised by is that the Bible does not expect us necessarily to believe the words that characters speak, that the Levite misrepresents what happened. Mm. Um, he 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 leaves out enormous gaps. The, the things that would show him in a bad light, he just doesn't tell the people. So I think I think the narrator expects to be believed. Now, obviously, whether we choose to do that or not is is up to us. But I think the narrator expects to be believed. He doesn't expect us necessarily to believe what characters say and i think understanding that characters lie and misrepresent things and actually that what we learn from their speech often is more t- is telling us more about their character than about the events they're narrating so i think that's one thing that is is quite a useful tool i think remembering i suppose linked to that remembering that i can't think there is no there is no well um, fleshed out character in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament who is um, without serious flaw. Um, there is only one character in Scripture who is without flaw and that's Jesus Christ. And I, I guess the bit the bit players who appear for a verse or two, you know, we, we we don't hear their flaws. But any character that we we meet for more than a few verses, they're, they're always flawed. Moses, Abraham, um, Joseph, um, Samson. Gideon I'm not going chronologically but you get the idea (laughs) um they're always flawed and I think sometimes people kind of need to be given permission to to name what they somehow feel they they've noticed but they daren't say because somehow maybe it's blasphemous or something Mm. these people were sometimes just terrible terrible people they did dreadful things Mm. and it's fine to call it out and to say do you know what that's a dreadful thing sometimes people get worried by that and they think that i'm implying that scripture isn't all somehow it doesn't all come from god uh, uh-huh. and and I'm, I'm not saying that what i'm saying is that any sentence any verse any speech only its first meaning has to be in relation to what's gone before it what comes after it what it's what it's addressing it, we do not know what it means until we've asked that question of wh- what it means in relation to the other characters in the relation to the other situations in relation to the, the the larger text when we have done that then we can do the, the the deeper work if you like of saying you know what do i hear from this what might god be saying to me through this but we mustn't skip that middle stage because mm-hmm. skipping that middle stage is really dangerous and so, if we do that middle stage, if we look at, for example, what um, the Levite says to the nation, and we compare it with what the narrator has said happened, and then we say, leaving the Levites a lying toe back, then we might, once we've done that work, we might then be able to say, what 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 might I be hearing from this? What might God be saying to me in this? If we just lift his speech up as if as if he's talking to me, and as if God somehow is talking through him to me then then we are we are actually abusing the text I mean not necessarily deliberately but we are we are kind of um, mishandling the text so it's not saying that this isn't all given to us by God it's saying we need to understand what it is saying before we can then say what might God be saying
1: that's so important thank you what is it that you think is the most important issue facing Christian women today
2: I don't know if if that's an answerable question because Mm -hmm christian women are very very heterogeneous you know yeah the, the questions that i am seeing at the moment um that are um specific to women uh, obviously we we share many many things with, with mm-hmm. men as well but things that we are seeing that are specific or, or relatively specific to women i'm seeing a whole lot of stuff around patriarchy which still is very present in many churches sometimes that is manifest well in all sorts of different ways so i've just i've got a a book coming out a bit later um in a few months time on domestic abuse and how um how the bible is being used uh by abusers to try and manipulate women into staying in situations of domestic abuse i know domestic abuse isn't an exclusively male or female issue by the way But it is most commonly that way round. And I think when it's being when the Bible is being used in that way, it generally looks like that. But more than that, I've been discovering as I've been researching this, how some church cultures function, I think unintentionally, but really clumsily to keep women in these situations to tell women they can't divorce their husbands, to tell women they have to forgive their husbands, and that means they've got to allow him to continue to abuse them. And even even more than that, some church cultures are doing what has been described to me on more than one occasion as effectively grooming women to accept domestic abuse because there is a male hegemony within the church. Now, what I don't want to do is say that all churches that take a complementary view of women in ministry um, or of women's role in church in other words that women shouldn't teach men you know that view of all churches that take that view are inherently abusive or are inherently facilitating abuse but i think the danger is quite real and i think when women are consistently told that they certain things they can't do that they're not allowed to do then it's very easy for that to become in the people's minds both men and women's minds that women are less valuable may not be being taught i suspect it isn't being taught by and large but people can kind of hear that and that women there to facilitate the ministry of men and all of this thing can become a, a sort of breeding ground for abuse abuse within the church and abuse within the home so It's not the only important issue, but I do think it's a really important one. And obviously, as a a Christian minister myself, I am not a complementarian. I'm an egalitarian. I believe that the New Testament is leading us to believe, is teaching, actually, and leading us to believe that women should exercise every gift in church, just as men men do. But even with people who, who don't share my view of theology there, and I have good friends and even family members who disagree with me on this matter. Somehow we need to find a way of making our churches non-abusive, of making our churches places that are absolutely of safety for women who are abused and places that are resistant to the development of abusive relationships.
1: Helen, thank you so much for talking with me today and thank you for uh, helping guide us through such difficult texts in a really clear and quite a hopeful way actually. So thank you.
2: Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's a privilege. I enjoyed it very much.
0: Well, that was interesting. Mm. Um I I was f- sh- the first thing that struck me was the stuff she was saying about how she didn't call herself a feminist because she'd never really encountered much sexual discrimination and it's only as kind of studying the bible that she's started to realise she probably is a feminist She, she made that sort of side comment didn't she about talking to a friend about it and I guess for a lot of us it's kind of no no I'm not a feminist and then the more you think about the issues that affect women then you start to think I might not have called myself a feminist, but actually maybe I am a feminist in that. I believe in equality, which is what she went on to say, didn't she?
1: Yeah, and we've talked before about the different labels that get linked to feminism, and and I think you can react against some of those that she talked about in academia, the sort of circle that she, uh, one of the circles that she moves in, where feminism can often have a very overly critical view of the Bible. And actually, if you're, a Christian then you might not necessarily hold it in in the same way as that and so you might think well I'm not a feminist because I can't read the Bible in the same way as other academic feminists are. It is really tricky though isn't it to have this word feminist that means so many different things to different people.
0: Yeah.
1: It's the same with the word Christian though. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. I've had times when I've reacted against the word Christian and not wanted to call myself that because of what it means to some people. Yeah, sure. I, I think that's right. Feminist is, is a loaded word
0: and we come at it with all sorts of preconceptions about what it means or what it doesn't mean. But then that's what we do about anything. Then there's the whole thing about let's talk about her thing about context, because that was interesting. Mm. I know that she, she talked about the fact that we need to look at the context of the Bible before we start trying to apply it because they will have written that with their own attitude, their own situation, their own approach, in just the same way that we will read it with our own attitude and approach. When we look at anything, we kind of um, look at it with through a lens of experience. I've heard us say it before, but the whole thing about the the, ju- the book of Judges and, you know, that refrain that goes through the book, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And if we don't kind of get that and get the big picture, we lose the fact that it's saying these people have made a mess of it Mm. and look what they did to make a mess of it. And then you get all those examples that she was talking about of um, people saying how the concubine got everything
1: she deserved. Yeah, and how recent some of those commentaries are. I squirmed when she Mm. said that. The idea of the Book of Judges being a charge sheet, because we're quite used to the idea of, well... I think in churches we are used to the idea that the Bible is made up of lots of different books and they are different types of literature, some is poetry, some is history and all these different things. But we still tend to read it as if what the characters are doing is right or in some way endorsed by what's being said. Mm. And her fact about it being a charge sheet and saying that these days we wouldn't we wouldn't look at a, a list of um, offences that a police officer writes down as being endorsed by that police officer. We would see them as being a list of crimes. Yeah, that's really Why helpful. Don't, yeah, what earth find it really helpful? Yeah, I've
0: never heard it described in that way before.
1: We did a study in my home group um, a couple of years ago now about Abraham And I was surprised by how many of the stories there are in the Bible about Abraham that I have read or been taught rather that um, endorse what Abraham does or that God is endorsing what Abraham does and then when you read the actual passages God's not mentioned in them no but actually we were reading them through and thinking oh it doesn't say that God endorses what's just happened it's just that Abraham does it and so you assume that because the uh, this great father of our faith has done it (laughs) it must be okay
0: everything's okay we do that a lot, I think. We do, and that—that that, that was her point, wasn't it? About all these characters lie and are flawed.
1: Mm.
0: Um, you only have to read a bit of, about what, as you say, Abraham, David, any of them, and you see what a mess they make. Hey, because they're human like us. Yeah, which is the wonderful thing, actually. Mm. That's what I, you know. That's why I was thinking as she was saying all that stuff. Awful because they're flawed, but wonderful because. They're just like us, they are human beings, and they make mistakes just like us, and yet there is this amazing story of God using them in whatever ways and you see that again and again with people that you meet today, you know you meet these people and they've written these amazing books or they're incredible speakers, and then you meet them one to one, and you think, "Oh my goodness, <laughs> you yeah, know or whatever you know do you know what I mean you know mm. and you you kind of like that sort of um things that necessarily are. Yeah highlighted in the bible but you know we all sin we all have our flaws pride you know whatever it is selfishness Mm. so um tell me about you asked her a question about intersection and i'm like (laughs) what are you
1: talking about grace (laughs) what was that what what, remind me (laughs) so (laughs) Intersection, if you picture a... Think of a Venn diagram, you know, when you have all those circles and they link together. Yeah, they're great. And so where the two circles or three circles overlap is the intersection. Right. So if you picture a Venn diagram with two circles, one says Christian and one says feminist. Yeah. As Christian feminists, we live in the intersection, so where those circles overlap. So you are a Christian on the one hand. You've got various... um, uh, requirements of you various responsibilities as a Christian you have you know you're, you're following the bible you're following God but then as a feminist you also have other responsibilities and other requirements and sometimes it can seem like those two things don't match up yeah or sometimes you can have people in one circle saying you can't interact with the other circle uh, a bit like Katie Locke was saying a couple of interviews ago that she goes to feminist spaces where they say that all religious women are handmaids of the patriarchy or something and then is in christian spaces and they say that feminists are all man haters and against god and all that kind of thing so mm. that's what i meant by the intersection that in between yeah. place we're hanging around on the edges mm.
0: there's a book by letty russell come it's called now i'll tell you in a minute and um is it called Church in the Round. Yes, Church in the Round by Letty Russell, that's it. And she's talking about how we're on the margins often. So, I, you know, is is a Christian family somebody who, by virtue of the fact that they're saying the sort of things that they are or thinking the things that they are, actually on the edges, on the margins? What do you mean?
1: I think quite often. It depends on which circles you move in, yeah. I suppose. But typically I would say if you're in a fairly traditional or conservative church then yes that's probably true and maybe you never quite feel completely at home in either space mm. which is why having things like this podcast and things like the christian feminist network spaces is opening up where you can be both at the same time and that's okay and you're with other people who understand Uh, the complexities of that is um, really helpful, I think. But I liked what she said about... uh, Because obviously Helen's a minister as well, so she doesn't just have the academic side of this to think about, and she doesn't even just have to live this out in her own life, but she's supporting other people. Mm. And she's supporting people, some of whom will be feminists and Christians and others who would not want to identify Mm. as feminists and would be quite opposed to some feminist ideals... Mm. And she needs to minister to both groups. She needs to be loving to both groups. And I think she was talking about building people up. Mm, that's um, wonderful. Which, yeah, was fantastic. And yeah. I think I'd like difficult. her to be my minister, actually. Yeah. <laughs> She'd be great. She could be the official podcast minister. Hey, yeah.
0: <laughs> Although we might offend a few other people that's if we said true. that. That's <laughs> true. Hmm. Okay, now then. She, she talks about patriarchy as being the kind of... The major problem,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. which is the same as what Natalie Collins said last time, Mm
1: -hmm. one of the major problems. One of the major problems,
0: right? One of the major problems, (laughs) right? Okay. So the question is, I realised we didn't talk about what patriarchy was. So, Mm. what? How would you define patriarchy? Uh,
1: So the word itself comes from the. uh, It means the rule of the father. So it's just this idea of um, a father being sort of the head of a hierarchy or a man being. Uh, the head of a hierarchy. And it's usually a societal thing. It's quite a, a um, institutional thing where everything is run on the idea that at the very top there is a man, right. and that men are default in charge. Uh, and obviously, uh, the church quite often is. We refer to the church being patriarchal because often and historically, leaders in the church have been men uh and in the bible some people will interpret um things that are said in the bible about the man being the head of the household for example or men having headship over women and so that's a patriarchal idea because it's it's men being rulers in various different spheres of society does that make sense yeah basically
0: men being in charge
1: yeah and it's it's quite it's quite important i think to say that well, men do benefit from patriarchy um overall but there are things to do with patriarchy that mean that men lose out as well, so like ideas about masculinity, for example, how can have a really negative effect on men, um, particularly their mental health and um, you know we see suicide rates in men are far higher than in women, and um, mm. that is uh, links back I think to patriarchy as well as um, other things so mm. not, everyone loses out, <laughs> not fitting the stereotype yeah, absolutely sad
0: mm. The other thing that I thought was interesting, and I think this will be a recurring theme in the podcast when we look at the Bible, is when she was talking about the fact that this was a nameless woman, mm. a second wife, or, you know, called a concubine, completely powerless, and indeed, you know, was treated abominably. And yet her story tells us something really important, and which I think we'll come across again and again in the Bible. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the people who have got no power and who are seen as nothing in the society who actually i think god uses to to tell us something important mm. uh, i think that comes up a lot in the, the gospels in mm. jesus is talking to people and it's a theme that we kind of ignore because it's uncomfortable who wants to go to the people who are in prison you know or on the streets or you know and, and I, i'm not saying that we shouldn't do that i think we should do that but it we kind of, avoid, I think we often avoid that stuff.
1: Mm, yeah, I think we're qu- we're quite used to saying that God uses the weak and the unassuming people in the Bible to do great things. But often the examples that we get given are of the men. Yeah, and um, or maybe the occasional named woman. So we talk about Mary, for example, being used. You know, she was just a teenage girl and yeah, uh, with nothing particular to to. Be remembered for and then you know god used her in that amazing way but yes to have an unnamed woman uh who helen refers to as a judge mm. that's a very interesting um mm. conclusion to draw what did you make of
0: yeah that? i i was tr- struggling to see how how she was a judge but i suppose what she meant was the effect of what happened to her meant that there was judgment
1: mm. the effect of her body yeah, you know the the message that her the, her body being sort of sent to yeah. various places had, um, and and the story itself being a judgment against Israel.
0: Mm. Mm. It's just a horrendous story, isn't it? Yes,
1: but the that's why we often don't talk about them. When was the last time you heard this story being preached on? Uh that'll be never. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> oh, dear, did it right. Um, I think that's a good place to, to finish. And there's anything else you wanted to say? No, I think we've covered it all. Okay. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Recovering God podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe and tell others who you think will be interested. You can follow us on Twitter at Recovering God, on Instagram at recovering underscore God or contact us by email at recoveringgodpodcast at gmail.com